Hi everyone, it's Stephanie here. Earlier this year, University of Toronto Press released my book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. I thought I would take this opportunity to read the introduction to you in the hopes that perhaps you might be interested in the book. If so, please check it out at your local library or pick it up at your local bookstore. I hope you like it. At any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Just watch me. So said Canada's Prime Minister when asked by journalists Tim Ralph and Peter Riley just how far he would go to combat the Front de Libération du Québec, the FLQ, in 1970. Pierre Trudeau had invoked the War Measures Act in response to the kidnapping of British Trade Commissioner James Cross and, five days later, Quebec Labour Minister Pierre Laporte, who was later killed. The moment, filmed on the steps of Parliament Hill, is iconic in Canadian history. Trudeau dismissing the bleeding hearts who are concerned about civil liberties while he tries to find a way to deal with the extremist group. But it is unlikely that we'd see such a scene today. Canadians have expectations beyond just watch me. In an era of WikiLeaks revelations, declining trust in institutions, and increasing expectations of privacy, the sudden introduction of far-reaching executive powers to constrain civil liberties without review or oversight is no longer acceptable. Indeed, improving review of Canada's national security apparatus was a major issue in the 2015 election, even as the Islamic State dominated the headlines. And yet, it is often said that the first and most important duty of any government is to protect its citizens from harm. Canadians expect their society will be free from terrorist attacks, that their online systems are secure, and that they will have free and fair elections without foreign interference. All of this requires a robust national security apparatus that has the power to investigate threats. This means interacting with communities and the use of surveillance powers to monitor and prosecute those involved in threat-related activities is and will remain necessary. Therefore, the key security puzzle for Canada is to show how to balance the growing demands Canadians have for privacy and transparency in government actions with the need to counter ever-evolving and increasingly sophisticated threats. This book aims to contribute to this necessary conversation by discussing what national security threats are with a view to helping to generate discussion about how we, as a society, should respond. My answer is that Canadians need to responsibly widen their understanding of what constitutes a national security threat. This does not mean Canadians need to be more afraid. Rather, we will need to be more empathetic to those most affected by these threats, whether they be marginalized communities or small to medium-sized business enterprises. Empathy is the basis of greater communication, trust, and cooperation that is fundamental to addressing the national security challenges of the 21st century. So what is national security? National security is arguably one of the most important concepts any democracy needs to address, especially as matters of national security often provide justification for deviation from regular application of the law. Yet, frustratingly, national security is seldom defined especially in the Canadian context. As law professor Craig Forsese notes, the term national security appears in at least 33 Canadian laws, 
but is undefined in most of them. A search of Termium, the government of Canada's terminology and linguistic data bank, defines national security as the condition achieved through the implementation of measures that ensure the defense and maintenance of the social, political, and economic stability of a country. It is important to note that we are not just talking about safe borders here. The definition includes the social, political, and economic stability of a country, suggesting a broad view of what security actually means to Canadians. It's all fine and well that we are invasion-free, but if our economy is at risk from extremist attacks, whether foreign or domestic, or if social stability is destroyed as a result of job losses following the closure of plants that have had their intellectual property stolen, Canadians can hardly be said to be secure. At the same time, this definition is too broad to be useful. Economic stability can be wrecked by a stock market crash based on bubbles and bad investment. And Canadians may not like it, but it cannot be said to be a true national security risk. Short of criminality, there are other branches of government that can deal with these risks other than the RCMP. Instead, to reasonably limit what constitutes national security for the purpose of this book, we can turn to the mandates of our key national security agencies. In this case, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, or the service. According to the CSIS Act, the service has the mandate to investigate espionage, foreign influence, violent extremism, or terrorism, and subversion. This gives us a good place to start in thinking about national security threats, albeit one in need of some modification. In the first instance, CSIS has not had a unit to investigate subversion since the mid-1980s. Additionally, while the CSIS Act provides a useful scope of national security concerns in Canada, we still lack a useful definition. Therefore, for the purpose of this book, national security will be considered the condition achieved when a country is able to protect its social, economic, and political stability from internal and external clandestine threats, as well as the overt threat of political violence. This condition is achieved through intelligence-led activities used to monitor these threats and the use of criminal investigations to counter them. So why did I write this book? There are a number of reasons why a book on Canadian national security is important. First, for the most part of its history, including the Second World War, Canadians have never had to think about security problems. Canada, often described as the peaceable kingdom, or even America's hat, reflects our relative security in the world. Surrounded by three oceans and with a mostly benign neighbor to our south, Canada has not faced a realistic threat of imminent invasion since the mid-19th century. Indeed, the social and political theorist Carl Deutsch described the relationship between Canada and the United States as a security community. That is, a region in which the large-scale use of violence, such as war, has become very unlikely or even unthinkable. While Canada is certainly vulnerable to nuclear weapons, this puts us in the same category as virtually every other nation on Earth. For the last 70 years, our security dilemma, to use the language of social science, is exceptional in that there's not much of a dilemma. At worst, our situation, a shrinking military affected by relentless cuts and our difficulties in procuring military equipment, is self-inflicted. Second, what writing there is on Canadian security largely reflects traditional defense issues. The Canadian military generally, relations with allies and organizations, our procurement problems, 
peacekeeping and peace enforcement, and recent missions, especially Afghanistan. Now, these are all important books, and they provide the context for understanding the current state of Canada's global commitments and ability to keep them. However, for the most part, they do not address the role of security at home. Even books that describe themselves as Canadian national security tend to focus almost exclusively on defense issues. Now, to be fair, the lines are not always clear. The Department of National Defense has a role in many aspects of national security as defined here. Although unknown to most Canadians, it has one of the greatest number of personnel working in intelligence out of all the government departments and agencies. And it is also the lead ministry of the Civilian Communication Security Establishment, the CSE. D&D intelligence personnel play a role in detecting and deterring espionage and foreign influence, and its special operations forces have a role in responding to serious terrorism incidents domestically. However, other than the CSE, which as of 2019 has its own statute, D&D is not the lead agency for investigating most national security threats as outlined in the CSIS Act. There are a number of other explanations for a lack of literature on Canadian national security issues. First, the Canadian national security community is relatively small. We do not have legions of former national security officials who have written books or public commentary, especially relative to the United States. Relatedly, as most national security officials in Canada are lifelong civil servants and not political appointees, as in the United States, there are few who cycle in and out of a university or think tank system or who can teach or spread knowledge about the Canadian national security community. In this sense, there are few individuals with experience who have chosen to write or speak publicly about national security. This means that work on national security in Canada tends to be historical, critical, or both. This is not to downplay the importance of much of this work. Let's state the obvious. The landscape of Canada's national security community is littered with the casualties of wrongly targeted individuals and communities, overreaction, and missed opportunities. Many of these cases will be discussed in this book. Canada's national security community is not and should not be immune to criticism. However, it does matter that few of the books on Canada's national security agencies are written by those with at least some experience in government. But even when that is the case, the authors often tend to be former employees with serious grievances. Fortunately, dedicated reporters cover these issues in Canada many of whom have written books on national security, particularly terrorism. Coverage of national security by journalists, however, has been heard by shrinking newsrooms across Canada, with fewer and fewer reporters dedicated to these topics. In-depth coverage is being replaced by wire stories or reporting by young journalists with multiple files who do not have the opportunity to develop knowledge in sources. The result is a distorted and sometimes superficial view of the Canadian national security agencies, the people who work for them, and the issues they address. Terrorism and violent extremism tend to disproportionately dominate coverage in the news, while issues like cybersecurity come down to false choices between creating a surveillance state and a free-for-all space for criminals online. Significantly, Part of the blame for the state of affairs rests with the national security agencies themselves, who have constantly refused to tell their own stories in the way that other allied agencies have. For example, the UK government has commissioned official histories, curated by qualified and cleared academics and writers. While most national security services in Canada have taken steps to improve their public outreach, 
A key argument of this book is that more needs to be done to further public understanding and trust. However, for me, the most important reason for writing a book on Canada's national security threats is that Canada finds itself in the most complex threat environment since the Second World War. Global leadership appears to be in flux, and the international order that defends the rules and norms under which Canada has prospered are no longer guaranteed. While this means Canada may have to step up its international presence, it also means that threats are challenging Canada's national security at home in unique ways, necessitating new policy responses. There are difficult questions we must confront. First, how should we manage the evolving threat of terrorism and violent extremism? When I began commenting publicly on national security in 2016, the Islamic State and its so-called caliphate, which drew tens of thousands to Syria, was the preeminent national security threat. Since then, the Islamic State has gone from a terrorist proto-state to having lost its territory. At the time of publication, the movement's next steps are not clear. It may gradually disappear, be absorbed into other groups, or make a comeback as previous iterations of the group have done. Further, other terrorist groups continue to plot attacks globally. Despite counterterrorism pressure, Al-Qaeda remains a threat and is determined to carry out attacks against the West, while some splinter groups with a foggy relationship to it continue to adhere to a hardline extremist view and a commitment to violence. Moreover, trends in international terrorism have a clear impact at home. Over 200 Canadians were inspired to go overseas to support extremist groups in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, and Yemen. Many have engaged in killing and violence, or actions that support extremist groups such as recruitment and facilitation. A key concern for Canadian security officials is that these individuals may have developed links to terrorist networks, receive training in extremist violence, and then leave conflict zones to facilitate or carry out violent attacks at home. Additionally, those who are unable to go overseas, thwarted travelers, may be motivated to conduct attacks within Canada. Yet, although much of the emphasis on terrorism in the last two decades has been on Al-Qaeda and Islamic State-inspired extremism, it is essential to recognize that terrorism comes in many different forms and that the nature of the threat is always evolving. Since 2014, at least 19 people have been killed in attacks by individuals subscribing to far-right and or anti-government ideologies. We are seeing the rise of single-issue extremism and far-right militia-style groups that seem determined to take the law into their own hands to what they see in their own minds as defending Canada from the threat of immigration. Although these attackers may differ in their specific grievances, a worrying trend is that some see themselves as a part of a larger movement, increasingly referencing each other in their manifestos. The perpetrator of the 2019 Christchurch massacre had the name of Canada's Alexandra Bizanet, who attacked a mosque in 2017, killing six and injuring scores of others, on his weapon in a perverse tribute. Even CSIS has increasingly spoke out about the challenge of a rising far right. In the spring of 2019, Director David Vignon told the Senate committee that the service is more and more preoccupied with the threat of violent right-wing extremism and white supremacists. In this sense, the service has had to increase its posture on far-right extremist threats, including groups focused on gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, and immigration. 
How should the government manage the constantly evolving threat of violent extremism? Some movements, like incels, are already challenging conventional notions of what terrorism is under Canadian law. And importantly, this comes at a time when the government is experiencing problems with terrorism prosecutions. For example, few foreign fighters have been charged or convicted with a terrorism offense. And despite the severity and violence of their actions, people like Alexandra Bizanet have not been charged with committing acts of terror. Although this may make sense from a practical standpoint, as will be discussed in chapter one of the book, it can be confusing to the average person and a source of grievance to affected communities. On the other hand, although Canadians remain largely concerned about the threat of terrorism, it's worth asking whether the billions of dollars Canada spends on this particular threat are actually proportionate to the real risks that terrorism poses. While much has been made of the threat of returnees, only a handful have come back from Syria, with open source information indicating that perhaps three had any kind of fighting role. There have been few internationally driven plots against Canada. Indeed, the most successful plots have been carried out by lone actors, who can hardly be described as masterminds. Might other national security threats be overshadowed by the serious but limited threat? Or do we need a wider understanding of the social harms of a wide array of violent extremist activity to better understand the problem? The changing threat environment is increasing the prominence of issues such as cybersecurity and economic espionage. In particular, both speak to a neglected question in Canadian security. What is the relationship between our economy and national security? Since the 1980s, the market mantra has been to get governments out of the economy. Yet, the manifestation of threats from other countries increasingly targets the engine of our economy, the theft of intellectual property, the ability of large state-owned enterprises to enter into an industry and skew its landscape with uncompetitive practices, and the ability to increasingly manipulate information in real time. Of course, while wider social trends are having an impact on our democracy, they are having a subtle effect on national security as well. The decline of trust, the shrinking of newsrooms, and the gradual death of local media, and the rise of populist movements in an age of uncertainty all have implications for democracy. Adversarial countries that have no interest in seeing a successful or prosperous West can take advantage of these trends and clandestinely work to amplify information that suits their interests and suppress what does not. The 2016 U.S. presidential campaign was not an anomaly, but rather the continuation of a trend by Russia to interfere in the elections of other states. Unfortunately, other states and entities are learning from this experience, and we can expect more actors to at least attempt to engage in similar activities. Canada will not be immune to such efforts. But the decline of trust has not been driven by foreign entities alone. Online WikiLeaks campaigns in the early 2010s showed that Western spy agencies are also engaged in activities that many felt crossed the line in targeting and surveillance. These agencies use a number of techniques, including exploiting vulnerabilities in popular mobile web applications, tracking individuals using free airport Wi-Fi, and searching thousands of documents and videos uploaded to online file-sharing sites, among other activities. Further, through recent federal court rulings, 
Canadians learned that CSIS had not been entirely forthcoming with judges when seeking warrants or the kinds of information it was storing. It is a problem if Canadians believe that our national security services are not being reasonably transparent in explaining how they monitor threat-related activities. A report on the findings of national security legislation consultations conducted between September and December of 2016 found that a majority of self-selecting participants did not believe that challenges in the digital world justified circumventing rules protecting privacy. Indeed, a clear majority of respondents were found to have an expectation of privacy in the digital world that is the same or higher than in the physical world. Somehow, our national security agencies must navigate the waters between a robust investigation of threat activity and meeting the high expectations of Canadians. In conclusion, to describe something as a national security threat, or as international relations scholars put it, to securitize an issue, is an inherently political act. It is to describe a phenomenon as an urgent priority requiring the immediate resources of the state. We see this when politicians describe something as a crisis, whether it is drugs, disease, or migration. Too often, though, to securitize something is to stigmatize someone or some group. Drugs become a matter for police rather than public health agencies. Those suffering from AIDS are seen as a societal risk, and migrants are seen as illegals, threatening public order. The result is that an issue may be successfully prioritized and resources may be given to an issue, but very often, those who may be the most in need of help are seen as threats. In the end, we are all worse off in such a scenario. As I noted earlier, the argument underpinning this book is that if we are to properly counter national security threats, Canadians need to responsibly widen their understanding of what these threats are. To be sure, the issues here under discussion have already been securitized. However, in presenting this book, I hope it can achieve two further goals. First, to produce empathy for those who are most affected by the threats discussed. After all, the impact of these activities is not abstract. The harm done to Canadians is real. Families are devastated in the aftermath of a loved one's decision to join the Islamic State. Mistrust grows in communities where known radicalizers are targeting youth. There are job losses at companies that have had their intellectual property stolen. And fear, anger, and suspicion are generated through vicious intimidation campaigns in real life and online. Empathy, being aware of, understanding, and appreciating the ordeal of others as they experience the impact of threat-related activity, highlights the need to robustly tackle these challenges, but to do so in a way that minimizes distrust. Second, the goal of this book is to inform. As the international environment in which Canada has thrived is rapidly evolving, it is important for citizens to understand key national security threats so they can better answer the questions about the security challenges of the 21st century. How should we prioritize rapidly evolving threats in a world of finite resources? While violent extremism remains a real threat to Canadians, other threats, especially cyber, are growing in prominence. What should be the relationship between the economy and national security? Is the rise of populism a national security threat? Who is responsible for cybersecurity, the state, the private sector, or individuals? 
What are the major challenges and opportunities of new technologies on national security? There are no easy answers to these questions, but getting acquainted with national security threats at least gives us a place to start and a useful departure point in contemplating a stronger, more resilient campaign.